Yes, when I, I drive over here sometimes, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. And um, have I got it right? Have I picked the right thing? I, I, it's always a puzzle, really, because I don't have any sort of... There's no um, program laid out or anything that I'm instructed to do. I just pray a bit. Shall we? What shall I do? Well, I always strangely find I'm encouraged when I arrive because... <laughs> The, the service suddenly progresses and, and I suddenly find that, yes, perhaps it is dead right. Your reading on Hebrews sort of suddenly gave me great encouragement because that's exactly what I'm talking about this morning. <laughs> um, although I'm not uh, uh, jumping on the part that you spoke about. So shall we pray? Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that these words that, and these thoughts I have prepared will both bless us and instruct us this day. And I also pray that if anything is not of you, that it will fall away and be of no consequence. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, so I'm talking this morning on the letter to the Hebrews, or just some bits of it, and I may unpack odd bits of it. Um, this letter is not actually a book of prophecy, and nor is it a story of Jesus' life. It was thought that it was originally a sermon, but was subsequently changed to make it look more like a letter. And it was primarily addressed to the Jewish converts who were being tempted at the time to revert to Judaism. So it concentrates on the supremacy of Christ and that there should be no turning back whatsoever to the old Jewish system Christ has come and Christ has changed everything by his atoning work on the cross. And the priesthood of Christ was unique and, and it superseded everything else. And the letter actually has been in the past attributed to Paul, although nowadays it's not um, thought to be written by him at all. And since all Paul's letters, all the ones he wrote, he introduced himself and they were addressed to somebody. That This is not in that way. So he doesn't identify himself. Um, so the current thoughts are that it was Apollos, who was an Alexandrian by birth, a Jewish Christian, who was associated with Paul in the early years of the church in Corinth. And Luke describes... Apollos, in, with great enthusiasm in Acts 18.24, he apparently was a very learned man with thorough knowledge of the scripture and spoke very well with great fervor. And the letter was believed to have been written before AD 70, which was the time of this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which brought about the end of the Jewish sacrificial system. So this fact was of such importance at the time it surely would have been mentioned in the letter, which it wasn't. And plus the fact that description of the priestly activities were all written about in the Greek in the present tense. The letter contains much practical advice, ending with some practical advice for Christian living. So there's so much in this letter that's absolutely applicable to our Christian lives today. To be living in the present society, which... We are, we're all finding ourselves increasingly on the margins. This, this can be seen as some very practical advice for persevering with our faith, which is what we need to do. 
We, we all know we're constantly now subjected to such a bar barrage of difficulties, not only in sort of the science that comes along and trying constantly to, to decry creation. Um, these all conspire constantly to knock our resolution, our faith. So, you know, this is something we've obviously all got to hold on to. Hebrews is a lovely letter which starts by exhorting the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Christ as the revealer and mediator of God's grace. Hebrews bangs away right from the start, bang, bang, by, by listing why Jesus is superior. Above all, in chapter 1, verse 1, 1 to 4, it immediately deals with the superiority of the Son over the Old Testament prophets. It's got to be remembered that this letter was being written to people who had a faith in God, but there was a, was a necessity to remind them that things had fundamentally changed. I don't know how we would try these days to explain the deity of Christ to somebody in the contemporary world. Not easy, I think. I think it's something perhaps that house groups could think about. I know we're going to have a look at it. Um, so Hebrews starts like this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down, the right-hand side of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is superior to theirs. theirs. And these short sentences, the extreme majesty and superiority of Jesus is exalted by seven great descriptions that would be clearly understood by the hearers of the day and equally apply now. So if we sort of unpick this, this thing, it's, it's quite amazing really in such a short space. It starts by telling us that God would now speak to his people in a quite different way, not through the forefathers, not through the prophets, but through his son. He is appointed to be heir of all things. As Jesus had obediently performed the work of redemption by his crucifixion, he was gloriously exalted to the inheritance of God's estate, which is actually all things, through whom he made the universe. Wow. An immediate reminder that Jesus' deity is fully confirmed in this respect in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. He was with God from the beginning, and through him all things were made. Now you were talking about, we were singing about the lighthouse. It's again, I thought, radiance of God's glory, it says. These words, I think these words just tip off our, trip off our tongues, radiance of God's glory, but the use of the words radiance is just as the sun, the brightness which cannot be separated from the sun itself. It's really, really bright. 
So Jesus shining is also quite inseparable from his de deity as, as he is God. So he's beautiful shining. He is the exact representation of his being. If he is that, Jesus cannot therefore be anything else but God. He is not an image, he's not a reflection, but a fully authentic representation of his being. And sustaining all things, he holds together all that has been created by him. He has also provided purification for sins. This was achieved by his redeeming death on the cross. The Jews are being reminded here that there was no further need for any sacrifices. That is it. And then it gets to, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And finally being seated at the right hand of God, the work of redemption is complete. And Christ is actively ruling with God as Lord of all. Amazing really, in just these few words, how it's banged hard at the, at the Jews at the time and said, well look, he really is the, the real business. And finally we get to verses 4 and 5. And we read, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For which, God, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. And this would actually at the time again have been well noted by the Jews of the day as angels were considered to be exalted beings, especially revered in giving the law to Moses in, at Sinai, which was to them God's supreme revelation. They expected it, and it was reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the archangel Gabriel would be the supreme figure in the, in the Messianic kingdom. The next few verses, 6 to 14, expands on this theme, establishing that Jesus was God's son, and that he beca had become his father. Linking many verses from the Old Testament, it's worth looking at these verses and seeing how these statements expand the arguments. The first section of Hebrews' letter carefully extends the exhortations of Christ's superiority, so we know this, over all by building the arguments with scriptural proof. Then it gets better as the letter goes on to explain that he is superior to Moses, superior to the Aaronic priests, superior to the sacrificial work of the high priests. Chapters 11 and 12 concentrate on pleas for them to persevere with faith, with examples of past heroes of faith and encouragement, motivation and exhortations, with the emphasis that there is no room at all for any turning back to the old ways. And that is the whole thing. It's, there's, no, no, um, there's no room at all for it. It's worth looking at these chapters. I mean, I've skipped over it, but it is well worth of reading through them. And after all the above, we come to chapter 13, which is the conclusion of Hebrews, which gives us practical rules for Christian living which are so relevant for today. These are words are so relevant for today because they talk about living as a community of faith, the church family in this hostile world. I think it's an excellent description of real Christian living. 
it starts right at the beginning of it by exhorting us to love each other as brothers. I love verse 2, which tells us not to forget to entertain strangers as we may be entertaining angels without knowing it. I always think of guardian angels. We always pray for them at our house group. Four guardian angels at the corners of our house. And I always love that because I think of that protection that we get from the angels. And they are there and they do protect. I don't know whether I've actually told you this before, but I've got a friend um, whose wife was involved some while ago, some years ago, in a very serious road accident. Which, in which at the time she was opinioned and trapped and she was really in a bad way. My friend was also in the accident, he wasn't quite so bad, but he was at the, at the scene um, with a few other people. And next to him, while he was watching what was going on, because all the, um, service, you know, the, the rescue services had to arrive and release her and everything, um, Next to him stood a man, and this man was in sort of black motorcycle outfit, you see. And this chap said to him, uh, you told my friend, he said, you, you mustn't worry about this, your wife's going to be quite all right. And actually, from that moment on, he didn't worry at all. He just watched what was going on. He was perfectly calm um, all through the rest of the issue that was going on. And she was actually, in the end, although left fairly scarred, she didn't suffer any potential amputations, which at the time seemed quite likely. But the one thing was that this man in the black leathers, nobody else actually at the scene had seen. Nobody saw him except he did. And he was standing next to him. So was he an angel? He, he thinks he was. And I think he probably was as well. So, you know, that they, we, we've got to be careful that when we entertain strangers, we might be entertaining angels. And that would be a lovely thing. So, if we get back to Hebrews, in verse 3, we're told to remember those in prison and those who are being mistreated. And that actually now is so much in this world, we're, because the communications are so much better, that we hear so much from a day-to-day -day business about this. So, you know, that gives us lots of opportunity for prayer in this, these areas. And verse 4, it tells us to hold marriage in honour and keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. The lust of the flesh is, is to dishonour marriage. Um, I'm not going to talk about that at the moment, but the lust of the eyes is also serious and a destructive issue, which is materialism. And this is something that we can draw from the letter and maybe reflect on how we are and how we approach this issue and what effect it has on our lives. Both these things are contrary to the love of the Father. In John 1 John 2, we read clear instructions about this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but man who does the will of God will live forever. 
So covetousness or greed is a strong desire for material things and is very, very strongly condemned in the Bible. Jesus says it defiles a man that we should be very aware of it. For instance, we read in the parable of the rich fool, which is in Luke, Jesus said, Watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of abundance of his possessions. Paul also taught against greed in several places in his epistles. In Ephesians 5, there's a very strong con condemnation. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, pure, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now Hebrews tells us that there's a good antidote to greed, and that is contentment. It is a call to all of us to be contented with what we have. In Hebrews 13.5, it extols us to keep our lives free from love of money and be content with what we have, because God has said this. He said, never will I leave, her, leave you, never will I forsake you. The meaning of content is desiring no more than what we have. When we are content, then we are satisfied and we have no desire for more. Greed or coveting is no more of a problem. So what are the key points of being content? Firstly, we must trust faithfully in God's provision, providential care. In my life, and I'm sure you can see in your lives as well, in retrospect, so many instances where God's, of God's provision, where he's actually stepped in and there it is, there it is. Always enough, never too much. The old not, pe not a penny less and not a penny more is so true with God. He has promised never to leave or forsake us. Jesus told us not to worry. Another area, he said, as we are of greater value to God than birds or flowers. He looks after them, so he will look after us. If we always put God what, what God wants first, we can expect to receive his care in our lives. So, we must be contented and trust in God that will provide all we need. Paul talks in 1 Timothy 6 all about the love of money and in his, this verse 6 he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So we again come back to this contentment. For we, are, we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So presumably, we must then consider that anything beyond food and clothing as being a luxury, for which we must also be very, very thankful. There's actually no mention of shelter. We're just talking about food and clothing, is what the provision so it's not considered, therefore, shelter as an essential. <laughs> Obviously not. So I was thinking about this and I thought, well, the millions of people who are without shelter do somehow have clothing. Wherever they are, if, if it's they live in an environment where they need clothing, 
they actually do have clothing. So God has provided there. And when it comes to food, well, we all know that there's plenty of food in the world and we know that it's the distribution of it is the problem and in most cases it's man's greed that stops the distribution. So again, we come back to the fact that God is providing and he's always providing food and clothing. And we must be thankful, therefore, beyond that, that we must be thankful for the food and clothing, but beyond that, everything we've got to be even more thankful for. So, when do we get anxious and worked up over things? The very best is always temporary. And the satisfaction we give, we get from it, is short-lived, and we know that. So, being contented is just removing greed, and knowing that material things will never provide lasting satisfaction or contentment. True contentment is a gift from God, and it's a wonderful blessing. It's a gift for all of us. His word reveals and confirms the temporary and inadequacy of the nature of material things, and how they never, ever fully satisfy. He provides what is essential for our lives. That God that will never leave and he never will never forsake us and we know that he's going to provide us with these essentials. So the letter to the Hebrews is full of instructions and pleadings to the Jews to stay faithful and live good Christian lives free of all the old trappings. It tells us how we should live as Christians. It tells us to be contented with what we have. We are on a journey with Jesus and we must try our best to stay the course and enjoy all the blessings and the relationship we have, we have with our God while we are still put on this earth. I don't know whether any of you have ever read books um, by David Adam. And he at one time, well, in fact for 13 years, he was vicar of the church on Holy Island, Lindisfarne. And I, I've got several of his books and um, I found one day, I found this line which I thought was so true. John, could you put it up, do you think? If you can find it. <laughs> and I thought this was lovely and I think it's something perhaps we could all say together because it's actually true. The exciting thing about our relationship with God is that it is a great adventure that has no end. And it hasn't. We shall eventually be with God, be with Jesus, and forever.